live A-C-U. from the ACU of Texas Studios. This is the Clear Lake Today Podcast Network. Lachlan, and I'm joined today by... Hi, I'm Leslie Tracy. And we're excited uh, to be with you all again. Uh, we are with the Bay Area Alliance for Youth and Families, an organization that supports two community coalitions and two youth adult partnerships that are working in the Bay Area of Houston to reduce uh, substance abuse among young people. So we service both Clear Creek and Friendswood ISDs. And we've been around since 2003, so we are, uh, now we're old, old people in this. I've been here since 2010, and Leslie just joined us in September, but we are rocking and rolling here with the Alliance as we're working to address substance abuse in our community. Today's topic uh, is prescription drug abuse. What is it? How is it impacting our communities, our kids? And what are some things you can do to address it? Those are kind of, that's kind of what we're going to do today. So uh, I asked Leslie to watch a couple of things this week or over the Thanksgiving break. And so she and her family tackled that. They, one, watched Chasing the Dragon, which is a, a video put out by the DEA and FBI. Great um, sort of following different stories and different people through their journey uh, with opioid addiction, right? Very interesting. Super interesting. This is definitely a topic that admittedly I have a lot to learn on. It wasn't something that I was really familiar with. Um, but so watching those videos has really, you know, made a lot of things, you know, come clear. And, and the, the one with the, the DEA chasing the dragon, it showed a lot of young people and, and also, you know, a lot of middle class, just regular people, not people that you would necessarily think would struggle with addiction. I mean, these are kids who had ballet lessons and were members of Boy Scouts and had great family lives, went camping and fishing and took family vacations and ended up on this road. And it's uh, it's just a, a you know a testament to how uh, easily uh, this turn can be taken uh, by good people. Great, you know it doesn't it's not what necessarily what you would think it is. Well, I think then the other video that I asked you to watch was just a short segment from 60 Minutes from a couple of years ago uh, that interviewed a guy named Joseph Ranazizi. He used to be uh, worked in the DEA um, top level. We actually brought him here to Friendswood several years ago to talk about the scope of the prescription drug problem in our nation. So what did you think about that? It was a whistleblower story. That was definitely super interesting and eye-opening and brought it back to the distributors of the prescriptions. And what my, my husband and I were talking about is it's not just drug dealers on the street making these choices but it's all of the people and all of the steps in the process that are making the choices to either look the other way or support this massive growth in this industry of the prescription opioids and how it just became a huge thing with 
um, you know, pain clinics and um, distributors of these medications to anyone and everyone. And where was, you know, where was the, uh, the re- where were the red flags and where were the, you know, people saying, hmm, maybe this is not the best thing. And, and what Joe Ranazizi was saying was they weren't even, I mean, the distributors in, you know, in his opinion, his findings was, you know, where were the distributors? They, the, they weren't even doing the basic level of questioning of these, uh, you know, clinics. Per, of these clinics that were filling millions of pills of prescriptions uh, to people. Well, and I think Houston was definitely impacted by that in so many ways because we had, we still have, um, but pill mills at their highest level. I mean, you could go down Bissonette and see place after place, ABC Medical Clinic, easy medical clinic and you could drive up there at 7 a.m and they were lined up you got security out front i mean when was the last time you went to your doctor's office and security was standing at the door yeah yeah. armed security at that Mm -hmm. um so we really we were impacted as a community in houston by this issue we even have our own cocktail named after us which is crazy. Which yeah. is really crazy. So it's the the Holy Trinity or the Houston cocktail, which is um, <laughs> hydrocodone and Xanax and Lortab. So, so it is a, a cocktail of three things. Um, so is that- I said, I'm sorry, I said Lortab, and it's actually Soma, but it's, you know, a muscle relaxer. So it is- was a muscle relaxer, uh, an anti-anxiety, benzodiazepine, and an opioid. And the problem with the benzo and an opioid is that CDC says they should never actually be prescribed together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they said that you shouldn't take an opioid with anything that is um, a depressant. Right? So what's like really also crazy <laughs> is that... Louisiana, known for being a little bit more liberal than our state of Texas, passed laws uh, more stringent than the laws here in Texas much earlier. And so people were driving by the the car loads down I-10 coming from Louisiana into Houston to utilize these pill mills. And they would oftentimes people, they would be paid to go and do this and uh generally it was uh, a prescription of at least 90 so you'd get 90 hydrocodone 90 soma and 90 xanax bam and sometimes they even have video of undercover officers in houston uh going in and, and the doctor quote unquote is seeing three patients at a time and oh my shoulder hurts and so uh, there are no files you know you can go in and see x-rays of people that do or do not exist but there were no records being kept the other trick is they gave you the prescription you paid cash for your visit and then you were told to go maybe you were at abc uh, medical clinic and ABC Medical Clinic sent you to XYZ Pharmacy. Pharmacy. So it wasn't prescriptions to be taken to CVS or Walgreens. It was actual pharmacy set up just to service. So whoever had those clinics set up was making double money. Mm. 
And a lot of times uh, before laws have changed gradually over time, it would be one doctor who would oversee many clinics and they would just have like a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant work Mm -hmm. in that space. Uh, A law was passed, I think in 2012, um, that said that a physician could only have three such clinics at a time. So that really did kind of change. And then now we have a, um, a real-time prescription drug monitoring da- database. So that allows legitimate physicians and pharmacists to go in and check to see, oh, well, you just went to Dr. You know Smith last week and got 90, 90, 90. Why do you need 90, 90, 90 now? Again. It's, it's crazy. And to think... The number of people who um, got headed down a path toward addiction through all of this. Um, we talked about last week on, on, on our podcast, we talked about um, e-cigarettes. And there were two things that we came away with. One was follow the money. It's the same here. Follow the money. And the other is once you have somebody who's addicted, then where are the resources to help them quit mm-hmm. and any kind of opioid is going to be a very addictive substance mm-hmm. so today things are changing it's not quite as um apparent when you drive down bisonette but they're still around. Mm -hmm. We work on a project called Educate Before You Medicate, and one of our colleagues at the other side of Houston, uh, what we do is we visit with local pharmacists, not necessarily chain pharmacies, but locally owned pharmacies, and talk to them about the prescription drug monitoring database, asking if they utilize it, kind of giving them some tools, giving them information about medication take backs or permanent drop boxes where they can encourage their patients to just properly dispose their medications. And she went, she said she felt it, it felt a little weird when she went into the specific pharmacy and about two weeks later they were busted by the DEA. So they're still around, still around. So I think that the DEA is aware of the problem I think it's keeping up with, I think there's 7,000 registrants. Um, You know what, I should take that back. I don't know for sure, but it's a very large number of registrants just in Texas that they're trying to keep up with. And and so they're working on... Registered pharmacies? Yes, registrants. So sorry, like when you're a pharmacy, you have to register with the DEA to have a license to prescribe and buy prescription medication. And you have to keep track of what comes in and what goes out. Mm -hmm. And so I think the challenge is, do we have the money... You know, are we putting money behind the problem to address that? Um, We know that the pharmaceutical companies have lots of money. We've seen recently, just this year, Purdue Pharma, who is the maker of oxycodone, they have endured quite a lot of scrutiny and many lawsuits filed by states and other organizations and groups on behalf of of addicts right um that they knowingly went out and really encouraged physicians to push 
their product. Um, I think it's sad. So many of these addictions start with an injury. Right. A lot of athletes uh, who have, you know, who start off with an injury, um, back pain, knee pain, they get this prescription and, uh, you know, I, I don't remember the statistic that I heard, but, you know, it's like a lot of people, one prescription is all it takes to be addicted, to get addicted. That's how strong these opioids are and how strongly they just, they just grip a hold of your brain. And uh, that was one of the things, uh, one of the articles I read about uh, the difference between the U.S. and Germany is, you know, how it's viewed. And that's one of the ways that they say, you know, in the U.S., what can we do to help solve it is that you have to start treating addiction like any disease. And if you get rid of the stigma of, um, you know, of the moral choice behind addiction versus it being a disease, um, then it's more likely to be, uh, you know, treated. And, and also, you know, in Germany, they had, um, they have more of the, the medic, the medicine available and the, the care available to their, uh, citizens. You know, it's, it's easier to get the treatment. There's more treatment available and it's, free because of the way that they structure their healthcare in Germany. But it just goes to show that there is a barrier to receiving uh, treatment for it. it. There's a, you know, a physical barrier. There's not as many places, a cost barrier. And then also the, um, the moral barrier of, you know, shame and, and stuff like that and uh, for being an, uh, addicted. Well, don't you think some of it comes back to the physician, the prescribing physician? Sure. I read recently that about 60% of those who have been prescribed opioids actually never had a discussion with their physician about how they were going to stop this or if there was a, you know, a structured step-down plan. Right. And that's pretty scary. I know from personal experience, um, I have a brother who was addicted to pain meds and it all started from an injury on the job and it quickly escalated, uh, caused huge challenges for my family. He had a young son who would call my parents and say, daddy's passed out in the front yard. Um, it is absolutely heartbreaking. Uh, something that is legal, something that is prescribed, right. but because there wasn't a plan in place, right. nobody said, Hey, what can we, you know, these, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to give you this many for now and then this many, but in the meantime, why don't you go to uh, a physical therapist? Why don't you go to right. an acupuncturist? Why don't you work on some of these other things that can, can be a, a full on pain management plan right that isn't totally Versus reliant on medicine. prescriptions right I went to a dentist um like a I had a tooth that needed a root canal and it was this was a couple of years ago and I was in a lot of pain and he gave me a prescription we scheduled the root canal but it wasn't going to be for like two or two weeks to four weeks somewhere along those lines and he gave me a full prescription of pain medicine of, uh, I forget which one it was specifically, but oxy oxycodone or something. And 
I was in a lot of pain and so I took them. I took them all. I took the, I mean I took them as prescribed every 4 hours as needed and and when I went back to the dentist for a follow up before the procedure whatever he he said, "Oh, you know, do you still have some of those pills, you know, for the next week cuz we wasn't going to be for another week or two for the surgery and I said, "No, I finished them." And he was acted like I did something wrong. He was like, oh, you took them all? And I was really surprised, first of all, because I was, I, I followed the directions on the bottle. You didn't tell me not to take them. And I think that's a huge conversation that falls on the shoulders of doctors to say, don't take them if it's not necessary. Mm-hmm. You know, it should be a last resort. And one of the things on the, the Q&A uh, or the frequently asked questions on the CDC website is that opioids should only be used for acute pain. And it says generally for acute pain, this is often three days or less. Mm-hmm. If it's something that is gonna be more than three days, that it should be at least come with a conversation of how are you going to not become addicted or not become dependent on this medicine. We need to come up with other ways, other solutions to this pain problem. Uh, but that was something, I mean, the, the dentist made me feel like I had done something wrong and he had never told me, you know, don't take it if you don't need it. I mean, thankfully I didn't become addicted, but I very easily could have. Well, and I think you and I were talking about the DEA and how they have this schedule Mm -hmm. of prescription drugs. And I think um, what's the problem with starting with the least and seeing if it works and before you bump it up a level, before you bump it up a level. Right. Um, it's, It's a fine line because some people, my mom's had two knee replacements. She needed... Uh, prescription medication to help right. manage that pain. Right. But her doctor never had that conversation with her about, you know, what is the plan? And so she was constantly nervous because we've obviously been through this. And I felt terrible for her because she was in this quandary. She didn't want to find herself uh, addicted to something like that. Right. But she also didn't want to hurt. Right. So where is that? Where does that lie? I think that that's... There's also a lot of people who have faith in the in the medical industry mm-hmm. that they think if a doctor is telling me I should take this, then there can't be anything wrong with it, you know. Well, and that kind of goes to 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 the addiction or the impact that the prescription drug epidemic has had on young people. Right. They assume if a physician prescribed it, even if it was to you, then it must be okay because a physician wrote that prescription. How dangerous could it be? How and so taking bottle right Walgreens and taking your friend's pills because he says that it will do this, this, or this for you. um, It has less of that danger quotient. So um, we're talking about you know addicts. They go from using things like hydrocodone to heroin because a hydrocodone is a lot more expensive. So um, hydrocodone a couple of years ago, so this is maybe like a year or two old, but hydrocodone on the street was about 5 to $7 a tablet. Oxycodone was 7 to $10 a tablet. And Oxycontin is $80 a tablet. That's all in the street value. 
That's crazy. So at some point, you're going to run out of money. So what are you going to turn to? You're going to turn to heroin, which is only 5 to $10 a bag. Right. That's what in that Chasing the Dragon video from the DEA, it was story after story. That's how it started. They st- it started with a pill one way or the other, either a prescription for some other kind of pain or one, a tablet that they got from a friend at a party. But it was all started off as this prescription opioid and then it come, it turns into the dependence that you have and, and not being, um, you know, not having the same effect. So you try to get more and you try to get more and they're just chasing this feeling. And then on top of that, it's once you stop taking it, it's the withdrawals that was over and over. The, the feelings of withdrawals is just the worst pain and it, you would do just about anything to, to keep from feeling that. So then that's how it goes to the heroin and then that's when you start getting the the scary things, the dangerous stuff, because heroin is the thing that you buy on the street mm-hmm. from those shady drug dealers, and who knows what's in it. There's a lot of people, a lot of things that were saying that were cut with meat tenderizers. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, was, because again, follow the money. Right. So heroin is actually now being trafficked from Mexico, and it's being uh, cut with things like meat tenderizer, Comet. Etc. because it's cheaper right. and the main goal is to sell a product mm-hmm. folks who are in desperation don't tend to worry about the quality right. because they just need that hit right and oftentimes a hit of a bad dose of heroin is enough to just kill you instantly right it's it's really tragic i, I went to a a conference earlier this year And the speaker was from DEA, and he said there that the number of people who died from opioids last year in the U.S. would more than fill Reliance Stadium. That's crazy. So it was just over 71,000 people died last year. And they're saying now the estimate is that somebody's dying every 22 minutes because of prescription drug-related overdose. And it's the number of people who would fit on a small 737. And I often ask if we had a 737 crashing every day in America, wouldn't we be screaming for the NTSB to do something to find out what the cause is and find a solution? But when they're druggies, quote unquote, right, the same demand is not there. Because somehow we believe they deserve it. But just like you said earlier, substance abuse is a disease. Right. It is something that can be treated. We don't have the money in treatment that we should. So finding treatment is a challenge. Especially if you have really decreased in your ability to function in life due to it you probably don't have health insurance anymore right so then how do you pay for it and we have limited dollars um, in the state of texas but oftentimes the wait for a bed for treatment can be two to three weeks and you think of all the things that could happen in two to three weeks that would keep someone from actually entering treatment and a lot of times i'll tell you my brother went through treatment multiple times right i'm so thrilled to say he's eight years clean and sober and i'm so proud of him because it wasn't an easy road uh to come back to but it's great to have him as a functioning part of our family right but that's a happy ending right 
lots and lots of people don't have the same ending that my family has had. And that's heartbreaking. For sure. Heartbreaking. Well, so we've talked about the terrible parts of it and there's so much more to it. So we will definitely have another podcast on, on the, just the, in unbelievable depths of this problem. But there are some solutions and the Alliance has been participating in some of those solutions since 2010, one of which is the medication Medication. take back. Mm -hmm. So since the Alliance's first medication take back, which was in September of 2010, we have collected just shy of 23,000 pounds of medications just here in the Bay Area. But the DEA is collecting tons and tons at every medication take back and I know that's not the business that they had intended to be in that they you know uh, didn't want to take that on as a project necessarily at least not long term but it's been an excellent partnership between the DEA and local law enforcement and then local community organizations like us helping to get the word out and to facilitate a smooth um, take back is amazing and I've had so I've had the I guess I would say you know great experience of meeting so many people who come through the medication take backs and they are so grateful because a loved one has died and so they have a closet filled with medications my grandmother actually lived with me when she was on hospice and it was amazing the amount of drugs that hospice left in my house and it wasn't such a big deal back then but I had two boxes of fentanyl patches wow and they left them with me wow and I used to joke before people started dying of fentanyl that you know I could put down a cat and then I start realizing no no I mean actual people um, we had a young man in Kingwood. I did an interview on ABC 13 with his dad several years ago, but he drank a fentanyl patch on a dare in a Taco Bell just a few months before he was supposed to graduate from high school, and he never woke up. How do you drink a fentanyl You patch? open it up and you... Yes. and so there's I mean, like a liquid. There's a liquid in, the, in patch. the patch. And I can't imagine what it would taste like, so that yeah. would be a major deterrent for me right but young people they think they're invincible they do and if somebody had cleaned out their medicine cabinet then he would not have had access to those fentanyl patches right and so we try to encourage and we know families they need medication in their their medicine cabinets Mm -hmm. but if they're no longer useful if they're expired if no one's using them if it's a medication somebody had a reaction to and you still have a bunch left Mm -hmm. don't save them Because it's just sitting in that medicine cabinet becoming uh, a carrot dangling in front of somebody who just might have an addiction problem. And so not only do we provide these twice yearly take backs that we do with the DEA and local law enforcement, generally in April and October, we also have permanent drop boxes. And you can go to DEA.gov and they have a master list of all of the permanent drop boxes in the nation that people can utilize. There are restrictions, uh, definitely no sharps, and a lot won't take liquids, liquids. Um, but I'll tell you, it's still enough to get rid of some of it. There are also a lot of community coalitions like ours that have doTERRA um, 
disposal bags, which allow for people to get rid of liquids. And it kind of neutralizes the ingredients and it allows you to then throw it in the garbage for safe disposal. Um, There are definitely options out there. We just really encourage people to take advantage of it. Because why leave it as a temptation? Right. Um, So that's kind of where we're at for um, this this episode and what we are doing to try to impact and address the prescription drug problem uh, in our community and in the communities beyond. We're going to leave you uh, with uh, some news of the week that Leslie's going to share, and uh, we're going to try to provide some updated information each week uh, just into the impact of substance abuse in our communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did have one question uh, from our social media site on Facebook. Oh. You can follow us on Facebook at uh, Bay Area Alliance. Uh, but we did have a question about what alternatives uh, to pain meds do we recommend. And I would say, by and large, the information that I've seen is to talk to your doctor about other kinds of pain relief uh, that's possible, especially if you have a history of family addiction um, addiction in your family, um, to, to talk with your doctor. A lot of times there can be other things like we mentioned before, physical therapy and things like that, where it doesn't have to be your entire treatment plan is a prescription opioid, but you could try to come up with a plan that includes other choices or other options. And if a doctor is trying to prescribe an opioid, ask them, you know, is there a lower level pain relief option that we could try first before you jump to that one? And then also, uh, especially, you know, if you get a prescription and you don't use it all, get rid of it. Take it to one of the drop boxes, uh, dispose of it uh, with a, a disposal pouch, find some other way to get it out of your house to get that um, you know, that bait, if you will, um, or, uh, out of the, out of the way. So, uh, news for the week, there's, hasn't been a whole lot, um, this week exactly. Uh, there's lots of discussions all over the place, but, uh, in November, so just a couple weeks ago, uh, the CDC did grant Harris County a grant of $2 million to the Harris County Public Health this week to uh, prevent opioid overdoses and to uh, provide additional treatment uh, and counseling. So that is one of the things that the, you know, everybody in uh, Harris County and in the country is starting to work towards this uh, opioid epidemic and how to battle it. And they're coming up with uh, solutions, uh, but you have to, you know, do your part as well. Uh, talk to your doctors, uh, talk to your kids, especially, uh, get rid of those medications in your cabinets, and uh, you can always join the Alliance and help us with our fight. Well, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Need to Know. Uh, We will see you next week, or I guess talk to you next week, uh, more about Um, alcohol and underage drinking and how that's impacting our local communities. Thank you so much for joining us. We can be found at www.ccisd.net slash alliance for more information and resources on how to help your community. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks.